and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. We're kind of global these days. Dubai, Australia, cooking olive recipes in Portugal while listening to the podcast and much more besides and of course the whole of the UK. And we have got so much to cram in in our time together today. We're going to have a conversation shortly with Ed Miliband. We don't often have interviews on this podcast. It's usually just us lot reflecting on all the dramas and trying to make sense of them and place them into context. But occasionally we have a conversation and uh, this one is a really interesting one. Uh, Ed Miliband has a book out called Go Big and he reflects about his hunger for big ideas, putting it into the context of leadership and all the other things that have happened to him. So we're going to have that very shortly. Uh, After that, my reflections on Dominic Cummings, your reflections on Dominic Cummings, some brilliant questions, some great questions about the Labour Party. A couple of them came in just as I was recording the podcast last week, so we'll be hearing uh, those and some other questions as well, the G7 and all kinds of things. And a question from somebody having a challenging A-level essay uh, and wants our help. Good luck with that. Uh, Anyway, before all of that, just a reminder, if you don't mind, that uh, the live show, my one-man show, Rock and Roll Politics, is live at King's Place on June the 28th. Yes, at King's Place in the main concert hall. Uh, Tickets are going fast, so do book for that. They're on the King's Place website. I'll put a link on the blurb for the podcast. But if you can't get to it, I mean, you've got no excuse if you live in the UK. Uh, You can fly in or drive from wherever to get there. Uh, But if you are in kind of Dubai, can understand, it's a bit difficult. It will be streamed live as well, and I'll be taking streamed questions as well as those live from the audience. And um, yeah, and in July, going back to the Greenwich Theatre, had a great time at the Greenwich Theatre in September when we were briefly all allowed out. Uh, Anyway, that's going to happen in July. And Uh, A return to the Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham, uh, one of my other regular locations, which is just great down there. So if you're on the south coast, Brighton and all places along that coast, do join that evening. That's all on their website, Uh, both those gigs. Gigs? A bit, you know, not quite. Yeah, gigs. They're gigs, aren't they? Live shows. Anyway, that's all happening in July and King's Place, June the 28th. In the meantime, uh, yeah, let's begin with Ed Miliband. Now, he's had this extraordinary political career. Politics moves so fast that you don't reflect long enough, I think, on the complexities and nuances of a career. Do you remember when I interviewed Alistair Campbell? His diaries cover Ed's period as leader, and that's an under-analyzed period. Uh, Ed himself uh, prefers, I think, now to reflect on the future, but certainly contextualizes all that he's doing with his experience as uh, leader, the election defeat, which of course was traumatic. He writes in the book that only if you're a leader of the opposition expecting to possibly win and have a meeting with Barack Obama, do you know what it's like to lose and find that, you know, the most exciting thing happening is, you know, I don't know, a doctor's appointment or something. 
Um, he, so he does reflect, but he is gripped still and excited by radical ideas. And they form the book. It's written in a very accessible way uh, and very engaging. But of course, it raises all kinds of questions. Uh, why now? Uh, if he's excited by these ideas, why didn't he adopt them when he was leader? Uh, he's had power as a cabinet minister, and most Labour politicians never experience that because Labour hardly ever wins elections. And yet, uh, these ideas kind of fizz and erupt now uh, when out of power, and he began as a powerless backbench MP writing the book. So we discussed that and many other things. And then say afterwards, on to Dominic Cummings. Actually, I asked Ed Miliband about Dominic Cummings and whether he thinks he's actually on the centre-left. I'm going to reflect on that afterwards as well and your brilliant questions on a whole range of things. But first of all, Ed Miliband and his book, it's called Go Big. Ed, could I begin by asking you, the title, Go Big, when you began writing this book, I mean, you've had the most extraordinary political career, an influential advisor in the Treasury, cabinet minister, leader of the Labour Party. But in a way, curiously, after the nightmare of losing an election, did you feel the freest in this varied political career of yours to kind of think and write big? What a typically perceptive question, if I may say so. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the answer to that is yes. Um, and I suppose it, it you know, it was a sort of, it was a book conceived out of the podcast I do, Reasons to be Cheerful, but also, you know, to respond to the sort of moments we're in, moment we're in or the moment we were in. I mean, it was, it was obviously before, it was started before um, coronavirus, but it was, you know, in the wake of both the financial crisis and the Brexit, the, the political crisis of Brexit. And I suppose it's sort of it's a combination of a response to 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 this era, to my thinking and learning from uh, election defeat, and speaking to I suppose my core and fundamental beliefs that you know what really matters in what matters most in politics is is a sense of a big mission and and a sense of 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 kind of what both what the country needs but also that at this moment of all moments um uh in the wake of of a of you like the discrediting of the old order between the 1970s the 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 order that was in place between the 1970s and 2008 arguably we needed a big we need a big response I'll, I'll ask you about the book in a minute but i'd like to pick you up on a couple of the things you've just said because obviously one of the striking things you've just said is what you learnt from the election defeat what did you learn in relation to the book i think what i learnt was i had a big analysis of the problem in 20 between 2010 and 2015 a big and actually it's hard to remember now steve but relatively controversial analysis um about inequality um about the practices of some businesses, what I call predators, um, about the need to intervene in markets. You know, people may remember my sort of um, uh, proposal around an energy price freeze then dismissed as 
living in a Marxist universe by David Cameron, now government policy. Um, so, so I had a big analysis, but I felt at the time that my prescriptions weren't big enough. I mean, I felt it in my bones at the time. And, but, but I was struggling both with uh, what Milton Friedman once called, I think, the ideas lying around, and also the era we were coming out of, which was um, New Labour. I was moving the party on from New Labour in analysis, but, but I never, I feel in retrospect, I never quite got to bold enough prescriptions. Um, and yeah, so, so I, think, I think that fundamentally mm. that's the learning. One of the interesting things, uh, the many interesting things about the book is, is some of the themes and I think you're on something. It's something I've discussed in the podcast and, and others have emailed to reflect on. Um, you use um, themes that are actually applied more by Tories. You use take back control as one of your themes, family values, free to choose. And clearly it was deliberate. <laughs> uh, but do you think in a curious way that Labour have missed something here, that the Tories have used these phrases which imply quite a lot of agency from the state uh, in terms of take back control and have used words like freedom, family values. And, and, and actually, you, this is partly attempt to reclaim such themes. I mean, that's very generous of you to, to, to say this. I suppose I suppose I I kind of think differently about different aspects of that. I think, you see, I think I think you know, in a way, one of the hardest things in politics is always to be learning. I think, particularly as a politician, maybe we're not very good at it. And I suppose, you know, the important thing is to try and learn. And, and I suppose I learn quite a lot from take back control because, you know, I represent a constituency, Doncaster North, one of the most Brexit-supporting Labour constituencies in the country. And I think take back control, people think about it as being about the EU, and of course it was about the EU, but I think it was so much deeper than that, Steve. I think it was about the fact that so much of what was happening in society and in people's lives, particularly economically, felt out of their control. You know, I, I talk in the book about risk and the way that risk has been loaded onto the individual and away from the state and business. And so I think it's important to learn and understand what a what are people saying by that? And then, and then on the freedom question, you know, I am very struck by this, which, which is, and maybe again goes to this point about risk. The fact that so many people in Britain, millions of people have no savings to fall back on, something we've seen graphically during the, the pandemic. The fact that our social security system is so miserable is definitely an inhibitor of people's freedom. <laughs> you know, that sometimes the right talk about negative freedom, but you know, you could think about this as positive freedom. And and so, you know, I talk in the book about the idea of the universal basic income or universal social inheritance, which is a kind yeah. of lump, lump sum version yeah. of that. And, and, you know, that is about expanding people's ability to choose. And I think that's a, I think we should be in favour of that on the left. We should be in favour of people having more control over their own lives to choose the life course that they, uh, that they, they want to have. I mean, I suppose one thing I would say about the book is I, I want to try and, I tried to write a book, as we do with the podcast, that was obviously I'm a politician of the left, but but hopefully it might have wider appeal beyond the left. I, I you know I've got Saeed Avasi on the cover of the book saying it's made her sort of think and rethink, which is very generous of her. But 
you know, I think that's what, I mean, I think partly, I think people are fed up with, you know, that people find party politics very off-putting. And, and that's something I discovered with the podcast, because a different way of talking about policy. But also I think it reflects with something that you just said, which is we're at a moment when we, 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 all political parties in some sense are searching for what is the new post-financial crisis, post-Brexit settlement. And maybe this can help inform, you know, ideas and policy on the right as well as the left. Just a, a, a slight detour, but not wholly. I mean, you've mentioned that Tories have taken up your ideas. Nick Timothy, I think, was a big influence on Theresa May, who was described as partly Ed Miliband-esque. And we've now got Boris Johnson spending and intervening or theoretically planning to intervene in different ways. I, I just, do you think Dominic Cummings is partly a kind of left of centre figure in some respects in his obsession about how government should work and perform better and deliver. I, I sometimes wonder whether he's a bit of a statist. Have you got any sense of where he I fits into know, this orbit? I mean, I don't know him. I don't know him. So I'm so so I kind of can't I, I can't I'm not sure. I mean, some of what he says is quite in that direction, although some of what he says is that government is always a nightmare and just has to get out of the way. So he's a very odd combination. But look, I think the wider point you make, and this is a point that you've made to me recently, and I think it's a really important point, is, is this, which is, you know, in the 1980s, which you and I remember, Labour was out of power and all the arguments in politics were on the right. And, and this is your point, so I want to give you credit for this. And, and you've really made me think about this when you, you, you said this to me. But, but we're in just a totally different era in the sense that it's not just that the Tories have taken some of my policies. Look around the world. Look at what some of the rhetoric, and I emphasise the rhetoric of Trump, Look at the way that Brexit talked about traditional centre-left or left causes, stagnant wages, the NHS and so on. You know, there is a sort of, the, 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 at least some of the, 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 the game, the match of politics is being played on the left on economics. You know, the, the central gravity of politics Steve, has moved to the left on economics since I was leader. I mean, I just don't see how you can deny that because predatory companies, predatory capitalism, inequality, um, intervening in markets. That was controversial when I was talking about it. You, know, mm. you remember the hue and cry there was about some of the stuff I was saying. Now I don't think people would bat an eyelid um, about it. And, and that does, and that now partly that's the experience of, of Brexit, which I think sort of showed to people the, the level of discontent with the system. But I think that is interesting. I mean, I think that is both interesting and, and it, it suggests to me that the centre-left has a, has a, or the left has a, has a chance to write the future. Before we look at some of the specifics of your book, which are absolutely fascinating and written in a very vivid and accessible way, just on that, because some people listening might think, oh, Ed Miliband, he's really a kind of political romantic, and maybe me as well, because I agree with you. I see a tide which is very different from the 80s, but maybe we're both wrong. Some people might think, hold on a second, Ed Miliband thought after the financial crash in 2008, this would be a left moment. Labour lost in 2010. Um, again, in 2015, some people said, oh, Ed Miliband, he thinks it's going to be Labour's Thatcher, Labour lost. You, do you think there is a danger of, I mean, it's crazy to say too optimistic, given you know, the number of yeah. defeats Labour have suffered, but, but of misreading tides? And I put that to you because I'm asking the question, but I would put it to myself as well. 
look, I think you always have to be conscious of that. But I suppose, and I suppose this goes back to your first question to me, Steve, which is, what is politics fundamentally about? I, I think it's got to be about um, saying what you think and saying what you think is wrong with the country needs to change. And I don't see how you can look at the financial crisis, the Brexit crisis, the deep inequalities exposed by coronavirus, not just the deprivation and the inequality terrible, you know, as it is, but also the powerlessness of some people to decide, you know, where they work, to, to, to be safe at work, the pay of key workers, the diminution and underfunding of our public services and the implications of that. You know, I don't see how you can look at that and think, okay, well, we think big change is necessary, but that's too dangerous. Let's not bother with that. And by the way, I think that's fundamentally wrong, because I think if we allow the right to own big change and, and Johnson, Trump, Brexit are examples of the right trying to own big change, whatever you think of the specifics of it, I don't think I don't think it's a big, you know, the only thing that defeats a populist right, in my view, is something which kind of understands the discontent they're getting at. You see, take Brexit. Mm. Brexit wouldn't have happened without discontented Labour voters who said, this settlement, like in Doncaster North, this settlement isn't working for us. You know, so many of my voters in my constituency said, we need a new beginning. We need mm. something different. Trump would never have won without discontented blue-collar voters, you know, in the Midwest of the United States. Now, you know, I don't, I'm not somebody who says, oh, that's just all racism. I just don't buy that at all. The, the, the roots of this, at least part of the roots of this is, is economic discontent. And unless you speak to that and say, we've got a vision to change that, and indeed primary colors, you see my critique of myself, Steve, is that I didn't, I wasn't, you know, vivid enough in primary colors. Mario Cuomo said that um, you, you govern in, uh, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And sometimes I, campaigned in prose rather than poetry. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think unless you, uh, uh, unless you, you know, get to people a, 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 a sort of big enough story, then I don't think, I don't think you win. It's interesting to say that because certainly reading each chapter, you do it in a, you know, you're writing in poetry, so to speak, campaigning in poetry, because you always begin with either a sort of personal anecdote or something very vivid. So let's take a couple of examples and explore them. Like your chapter, I think it's the chapter called A Housing Revolution. Yeah. And you pose the question, which city has the best quality of life in every survey? And you, I think you say you'd never believe it. And I was really surprised. I mean, I, it's Vienna that you yeah. reveal in the opening paragraphs. And that's partly to do with the housing and people on low pay having access to decent housing in the centre. I have no idea. Um, and each chapter surprises you in that way. Um, how the heck do big cities in the UK, like London, get close to Vienna in terms of housing? Well, but I mean, this is so interesting, Steve, because and actually it goes to sort of my, you know, this is the left right thing. I was on this shelter social housing commission a couple of years back with Saeed Avasi, former Tory uh, chair. Um, chair of the Conservative Party, Jim O'Neill, former Tory cabinet minister, so never, never much of a Tory. And, you know, we came, at least certainly Saida and I came from different backgrounds, but we, the conclusion came to was this. We used to build social housing in the UK. We, you know, post-war governments competed to see who could build more social housing. That stopped under Mrs Thatcher. It, I'm afraid it wasn't 
uh, restarted under the Labour government. We did great things in terms of repairing people's homes, decent homes and all that. We didn't build social uh, housing, not nearly at the scale that was necessary. And what has happened? Has the market filled the gap? No. Have successive governments tried to find different ways in which we persuade the private sector to fill the gap? No. Uh, they've tried but failed. Um, we've ended up with an insecure private rental sector. Now, that could be made better. But we are never going to get, in my view, to the kind of housing targets we need as a country. We're never going to make cities livable for people at affordable prices unless we have a, a non-market solution of social housing. And, and it is absolutely mm. extraordinary to me. And, and, this is, and the, the key thing about this is it's building hundreds of thousands of social homes a year, not tens of thousands. And we're not even building tens of thousands. But, you know, and it's just extraordinary to me that, you know, there's so much logic to this. You look around the world, not just um, Austria, but Singapore, all kinds of places that do this. And it's like the one thing governments don't really engage in doing. Now, George Osborne or, or David Cameron once famously said to Nick Clegg, we're going to create lots of Labour voters uh, if we do this. So we don't want to do this. But, you know, I think this answer is staring us in the face. And, and you know, the fact that our major cities are becoming have become actually unlivable unless you have an exorbitant salary you know, mm. it's bad in so many different ways. And, and the other thing I say in the in the chapter is building a large number of social homes. This is something I learned from the Shelter Commission. Isn't just good for those who live in them. It makes a more it makes for a more sane housing market because you are doing something about the massive supply demand problem. So, you know, goodness knows whether any government's going to do it. Um, but but the, I think the case is overwhelming. Another of your big themes is, uh, and there's a chapter with this title, Westminster Doesn't Know Best, but it's a kind of running theme about how you empower people from giving employees more power in the private sector or in any sector to, I, you know, you're a big fan of citizens' juries to devolving power. Um, and you say that, you know, one of the problems with New Labour is it tended to impose from the centre, whether it was targets or whatever. But you know from your experience in the Treasury, it's really hard, isn't it, to let go because you are so worried about what the consequences will be from the centre when power goes elsewhere. In other words, that things, yeah, could go right, but they could also go badly wrong. The centre tends to get the blame and, and, and the problems begin, even though it all sounds completely enticing. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. This I've got sort of, I mean, there are at least two chapters that speak to this. One, yeah, one is about one is about devolution. Yeah, um, uh, and then one is a chapter which I found quite difficult to write, but I thought was important, which is about the state. And maybe I, I'll sort of take each of them in turn just briefly. I mean, look on devolution. I mean, it's a bit like the social housing example. I mean, it's like you know, we're, we're, we are the most centralized country in Europe. Um, by like a long way um, and we are all still um, and we are also the most regionally unequal and the two are connected unless you give local people local uh, elected leaders proper authority to decide what matters for their area you're never in my view going to solve our, our inequality problems and you've got to it's also got to be about resources uh, as well the notion that you know, if you devolve, you end up with more of a postcode lottery. Well, we've got a massive postcode lottery where, where you know, funding and, and, and outcomes are incredibly unfair. We've got that with being incredibly centralised. Now, devolution yeah. of Scotland and Wales has been a sort of breach in the dam. 
but but it but even the devolution that has been provided now to the to England is incredibly piecemeal and it's all negotiated and it's it's actually rather extraordinary when you look into it because it's it's what I call a permission slip approach it's basically Whitehall will allow certain things but not other things so take Andy Burnham he is re-regulating bus services but if he were in Greater Manchester yeah he has to he has to, he has to jump through a, an infinite number of hoops to do it and then have potentially go to court with the private sector who's going to challenge him but if he wants to run his own bus companies he is prohibited by law from doing it if he mm. wants to have a mm. municipal bus company in Manchester he cannot do it and I cite the example of Dunkirk in the book, where they not only run their own bus company, but it's free. Now, you can be in favour of free bus travel or not. It's becoming a real trend in Europe, climate change, you know, affordability, etc. But the notion that a, government, a, a, a local or regional government in Britain could do it is for the birds. So devolution. And then the, just on the state, I mean, this is, as I said, this is a really important chapter for me, and it's, 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 it's hard to write. I, yeah. think what I, I think what I believe is that all of the approaches that we've had since the kind of post in the post-war era which is a sort of centralized westminster knows best a kind of targets culture under new labor and a kind of privatization outsourcing none of them really answer what is needed now this is really hard and it's hard to make happen but i think it comes down to this which is you know in the end you have to provide enough flexibility and enough uh, empowerment of both communities and people who who work in public services in order to make this to in order to make services work and why why do i say that i think essentially because so many of the problems we face today are just not soluble unless you have people engaged in the solution of them and, and i used to find when i was in the treasury that you'd you'd go to i was involved in the tax credits um project which did great things but then you i'd go to the social security offices talk to people in the benefit on the front line of the benefit system and they'd always say to me oh we we've got lots of solutions to make the benefit system better and it doesn't necessarily need to cost more but nobody ever really asks us and if and we don't have the flexibility and i think mm -hmm. the flexibility for the people working on the front line is part of it and then and then sort of giving people power over the things that matter to, to them. So I, I cite a very um, a great innovator in this respect, Hilary Cotton, who, who sort of found ways of kind of, it, with so-called troubled families, you know, turning it around and saying, instead of having multiple people, you know, administering to, to troubled families, why not give them more power over what matters to them? Now, this is really hard. I don't pretend it's easy for all the reasons that you say, but I, but I think the left, this is my contribution, this, this chapter, to saying the left is good at inveighing against the market and the problems of the market, but you've got to really think about the problems of the state and how you address them. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, it, it, there are some big, big themes of which that is one, and it's a sort of conundrum, central versus local and empowerment and so on. And there, you, I think probably rightly would argue that you, you, there's a whole chapter on cycling and walking. I think you call it bike feet. I mean, yeah. uh, you've taken up a bike and there's stuff about life beyond markets in different forms. I mean, there's, there's a real range. And you obviously enjoyed writing, you, you, you write in the introduction how, how much hard work it was, but I get the impression that you in, enjoyed writing it, uh, did you? Yeah, and it was a chance to, I think, you know, you put your finger on at the beginning, I mean, it was a chance to sort of think about ideas and to, and to sort of wrestle with, well, you know, because I do, I do these ideas, some of these ideas, some of these ideas on the podcast, but that's a sort of 
a weekly consideration of them. It's a chance to really think, well, look, how, how do we make this work? And also, you know, this isn't a book written with politics, you know, simply with sort of next week's politics or even next year's or, you know, the next manifesto in mind. But, but, but I did try and have a weather eye on, okay, this idea might sound great, but is it really, is it in the realm of the feasible? I mean, but one of the important points I think I make in the introduction, which I do really believe, is that, you know, I say that, I think it was Bismarck said that politics is the art of the possible, but, but maybe I've come to the view that politics is, is partly about making the impossible possible. Now, what do I, that sounds like a mouthful, what do I mean by that? You know, if you think about the great changes that have happened in our society, like the NHS, for example, or LGBT rights, you know, the people who, who thought of them, I mean, it, the, the NHS was, or something like it was first talked about, I think in the minority report in the poor, on the poor laws in 1909, it took 35 years to happen or more. You know, it, it's, it's partly there's, there's different ways of making change happen. And there is keeping alive big and important ideas, which may not happen next week. And then there's the possible, the, the, the incremental, which kind of opens the way to something different. So I, I talk about father's leave, for example, and this idea of use it or lose it father's leave. So father's leave de dedicated to, to fathers, uh, because, and especially what the Scandinavians have done, and it's made a massive uh, difference. Now, you, you, you know, you're not going to get to a full, all signal dancing Scandinavian parental leave system tomorrow, but you could make some progress on it. You could, you could take some steps towards it. And so it's trying to think, well, not just what's the impossible, but what's what's the possible that might open up a different a different world. Some listening uh, might say, "Well, hold on a second. Uh, Ed Miliband has been leader of the Labour Party, and therefore has had the chance to um, put these ideas into practice. First of all, you know, in an election manifesto, and then, if you had won, in power. And it does raise an interesting question." I can absolutely see you feel liberated now. And this is the question, not about you so much, but why is it that being Labour leader seems so quickly to become a trap? I mean, I, I interviewed, we don't do interviews that often on the podcast, but I interviewed Alistair Campbell because we were having a chat and he had his diaries out. And he said in the interview, kept on saying to you when you were leader, don't ditch new Labour, don't dump, don't move on, don't dump the legacy kind of thing. Now, so I could tell that was one pressure on you. You had the media was another pressure on you. You had the rest of the party was a pressure on you. Why is it that Labour leaders don't have the freedom to do what you've now done? Um, and is there a lesson in this for Keir Starmer, who appeared to be elected sort of pitching himself to the left and the membership but it's I'm told now we don't I don't know you might you know Peter Mandelson's there and Tony Blair, and, and and that leaders become trapped into trying to reconcile the irreconcilable and that's why you're freer now than when you had the theoretical power to put all this into practice I mean look it's really good to um <laughs> excuse me question um let me try and mount a decent answer. I mean, look, first of all, I'm reluctant to give advice to, to Keir Starmer. People have so much advice uh, as, as, yeah. as leader of the Labour Party as I know, as I know very well. <laughs> uh, I mean, being leader is a different enterprise than being, you know, a front bencher in the shadow cabinet, or I started the book as a backbencher, obviously, um, or an ex-leader. 
you have you have all those pressures on you that's that that's true um i think i think i've got a sort of the, the best answer i can give is a sort of dual answer which is one i think we're in a moment for boldness and i think that is what biden joe biden in a way shows that that, that i think the moment demands it and that's what i think fundamentally matters and i think that that's you know, that that's what I think, the, and I think, by the way, that's the best future for Labour because I think the way you unite the the coalition of you know towns like Doncaster and you know metropolitan, more metropolitan areas, Manchester, London, and so on, is actually big economic change. Um, the second thing, though, is maybe it's partly and this is why I, this is why I thought a lot about this this point I made earlier about the impossible and the possible. You see. If you take what Mrs. Thatcher did in the 1979 manifesto, so I sort of went back and thought about this. Yeah. She didn't propose, propose the privatization of water, electricity, telecoms, um, railways, Christ knows what else. <laughs> she proposed some very modest privatizations of aerospace and shipbuilding. Now that uh, that's sort of what I mean about the possible opening the way to the impossible. And and she sort of recognised that you needed proof of concept. Now, no two moments are the same, um, you know. So, so I'm not saying it is, but but but, you know, I think there are different ways of doing this. I think I think the big vision is is important, um, and but 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 maybe inherent in the art of leadership is a certain sort of is a certain constraint. In other words, I think I. I place too much constraint on myself and I wish I'd been bolder, but maybe the second part of this is, and I think this, this moment in particular demands it, but I think also that, you know, leaders just face their pressures and it's just different from, you know, it's just different from a different role, other roles you can play. But, and I know, I mean, you're in the shadow cabinet, you can't say anything. Critical. I'm not going to ask you to say anything critical of Gistarm, and you wouldn't. But from that, I get it that you, once or if we're out of this pandemic sequence, you will expect boldness and from from him as a leader, uh, and and that that is also the route towards electoral. I mean, it's a vague word, let's be honest, boldness. It can be many different things, sure, but I know sure. you mean it in a policy agenda, sure. um, close to the book, I assume. I mean, look, I, so I, that's think what, I know you're not yeah. going to advise him, but that I'm, is I'm not. presumably you, what you, <laughs> you look, look, you know, in a way, leadership is a collective enterprise. Uh, let me say this about Keir though. He recognizes this. I mean, he recognizes that you need a, you need a you need a bold transformation of our economy. I mean, he, you know, he gave this speech a few months back, um, which I don't think he got the credit he deserved for it, actually, because because that was what he was saying in that speech. And I know he understands this. And I know um, uh, that he uh, believe he, he believes it. You know, I, I think I think the other thing, Stephen, you and I have discussed this many times over the years, probably privately and publicly. People. I mean people often take a snapshot of the moment and and turn it into a prediction of the future and the snapshot is not a prediction you know we are at a particular moment starting to come out of the pandemic how quickly we don't know i don't think that this will be the argument of the of the next election i think the next the argument of the next election will be 
will actually be who can really who can really learn the lessons, not just of the pandemic, but of the last 10 years and the deep crises we face. I'm so struck by the Biden, by the Biden administration's language. You know, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, came in and talked about the I mean, Joe Biden talked about his inauguration, but she, as the Treasury Secretary, talked about the financial crisis, uh, sorry, the climate crisis, the inequality crisis, the long-term inequality crisis. I think this is the direction in which progressive politics is going. You see it in with the with the Biden people. So, so, and I think it, it's because it's what the moment demands. So, I sort of think this is where politics will be propelled to. And I think the question for the Tories will be: Okay, you made these grand promises about leveling up and all that, but are you really going to deliver it now? I'm very, very sceptical because I think they are caught between their continuing free market beliefs, but their recognition of where the public is. And this this kind of comes through on everything from what you do about universal credit to do you have regulations to stop people being fired and rehired, which we've seen at some major companies like British Gas and British Airways. There's going to be a plethora of examples of this where the rubber hits the road and the question is, well, you know, both parties are saying they want to transform our economy and so on, but who's who's really going to do it? Could I finally ask you to sort of end really where I began? I mean, you wrote this book and you, you, you can tell you felt you were on the back benches when it began and you were free for the in inverted commas for the first time for a long time to develop your ideas and articulate them. Um, you're now back in the shadow cabinet. So you're back kind of where you were, you know, before you started writing the book, um, part of a collective front bench team and all the rest of it. Uh, are you okay about that? Do you feel ambiguous about it? Um, no, I don't. I mean, I feel very black, glad to, to be in the shadow cabinet and very glad to be pursuing things I, you know, causes I really care about. Look, you know, in a sense for me, Steve, you know, I could have gone off after the 2015 election, Cameron, Clegg, Osborne, um, all gone. Um, I don't criticise them for that because I sort of understand the reasons. I think it's very hard to follow. I mean, you know, in some cases it was sort of um, losing their seats. In some cases it was, um, you know, a decision to leave. And I don't criticise them for that. But I'm a sort of, I want to not just write about ideas, but make them happen. And if you want to make them happen, you know, then you know, frontline politics for all its sort of dilemmas, for all its constraints, for all its sort of intrusion, um, you know, and, and, you know, was I sort of, did I have to think hard about coming back into the front line? Not because of any other reason than the personal, I don't want to say sacrifice, because, you know, we're in an era when people have made real sacrifices, but, you know, some of the aspects of this that, you know, when I was Labour leader, my, the thing I had to compare it to was being Labour leader. And I thought, I don't want to go back into the front line like that. Um, <laughs> but I'm very pleased to be in the front line because I, you know, the climate crisis, how we reshape our economy and work with business and all of that, you know, these are fundamentally important issues. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be here. But, but, you know, in a sense, I suppose, I suppose one of the things I think about the book is I hope, you know, I, I think we owe it, uh, I owe it to um, the role that I'm playing to try and bring, you know, ideas to, to, that, to, that, to that role. To, because, you know, we're, we're in the decisive decade of the climate crisis. You know, this is massively urgent. Todd Stern, the former Obama envoy, said if a meteorite was heading 
towards the planet, we would certainly be acting, but we're not acting that way on climate. Mm -hmm. You know, um, so so it's urgent and we need big ideas to 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 confront it. And so that that's kind of why I am where I am. Oh yeah. I only pose the question. I I know the answer. I mean, you would have um left Parliament if you didn't want to go back onto the front bench, wouldn't you? I mean, so in the end, you decided long ago by staying in Parliament that you actually wanted to get back on the front line, in this case, the shadow cabinet. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair point. I always thought there might, there would probably come a moment when I wanted to uh, come back on the front line for all of the, you know, for all of the issues about being on the front line uh, completely. Um, and, 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 you know, um, that's why I'm here. And, 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 you know, I, I still, I still sort of, you know, I still believe in change. I mean, I, I sort of think, and in a sense, you know, people are quite, this is why it comes back to the podcast, actually, Jeff, Jeff Lloyd, my co-host, approached me in 2017 and said, look, people are very despairing. Shouldn't we do a podcast about ideas? And, you know, I sort of think, well, you know, I lost the election in 2015. I'm not despairing. You know, I'm determined. Um, and that's why I'm still engaged in, uh, in in politics. Of course, there are massive obstacles, but, you know, people have faced massive obstacles before and overcome them. So there we are. That was Ed Miliband reflecting on all kinds of things, but uh, based around his new book, Go Big, which, as I say, fizzes with ideas that are radical, but there are plenty of examples he gives of where they are already being put into effect in quite surprising places, including, indeed, the United States. Meanwhile, back to Great Britain or the United Kingdom, where Dominic Cummings' testimony this week revealed the degree to which government isn't working here in the UK uh, on several different fronts. Obviously, we've discussed many times the uh, political leadership of Boris Johnson, but uh, he goes much wider Cummings in terms of his critique of the government small g, the government of... Um, uh, the civil service, the way the Department of Health works specifically, and all kinds of other things. It raises a key question, obviously, which is how reliable a witness is Dominic Cummings. Uh, and on that, I kind of think this. Uh, it's very interesting how there are sometimes public figures that emerge who are different to what you imagined them to be. Sorry, I, well, I don't know why I'm generalising, what I imagined them to be. I've talked before about John McDonnell, and I had a kind of caricature of him in my mind. And as Shadow Chancellor, he challenged that caricature uh, in, in many different ways. And I had a, you all will know, regular listeners, a sort of caricature, a stereotype of Dominic Cummings, which I think was based wholly unfairly on kind of newspaper reports. I don't know him. I think I might have met him once, once with uh, Michael Gove, uh, but I didn't know him at all, but read about this figure uh, of, uh, and formed this view that he was this kind of, angry, shallow, revolutionary hater, really, you know, hated Brussels, hated Westminster, hated MPs and all the rest of it. Um, but of course, I should have realised that was too one-dimensional. And 
he came across in some respects uh, in that seven-hour hearing as uh, thoughtful, with a genuine interest in how government works. And I'm not revising my opinion on the basis, oh, well, he slagged off uh, Boris Johnson and you think Boris Johnson has uh, performed poorly, poorly as putting it politely, in the COVID uh, crisis. Therefore, you conveniently change your opinion. I think what he said about Boris Johnson was damning, uh, but that doesn't interest me as much as the intelligence of his wider critique. He obviously could see through the chaos of uh, Johnson, um, but that could be dismissed as, you know, vindictiveness and all the rest of it. But he, as I say, contained, conveyed a, a fascination with expertise and government that went beyond, kind of when I read, oh, you know, he wanted to bring in all these outsiders... I superficially assumed it was just to kind of confirm some eccentric view of his. Um, and I believe what I'd read in papers like the Sunday Times, that he had been sort of casual about the number of deaths involved, and I thought he was involved in some wacky, dangerous experiment vis-a-vis uh, -vis COVID and British exceptionalism and all the rest of it. Clearly, that wasn't the case. And I, I think he has... Uh, valid points to make about uh, the complacency in parts of the civil service. One description he gave of, you know, what uh, kind of got rewarded and promoted in the civil service and Whitehall and in government could have applied. You know, I, I don't know if any of you heard my uh, podcast last week about the BBC, but it could have applied exactly to the BBC and the way layers of bureaucracy protect people, uh, but in the end expose them because they become so kind of complacent and yet neurotic and fearful for the wrong reasons um, that they end up in trouble. And this historic pandemic has exposed many of the fragilities in Whitehall in a way that he saw. And instead of just wanting kind of power for its own sake and glory, he clearly wanted to bring about change. So he becomes a more interesting figure. I mean, I asked Ed Miliband whether in his interest in, in the way the state works and government works and in, in his support for early lockdowns, whether he was a kind of status that placed him on the left of centre. Now, I, I merely pose the question. I don't, I'm not, don't know him well enough to answer but certainly he doesn't fit into the right-wing libertarian Thatcherite kind of Brexiteer, hardline Brexiteer, of which there are quite a few in the Tory party. He's not a member of the Tory party, but he's always been on the right. You know, he worked for the Spectator, he worked for Ian Duncan Smith. Um, but anyway, there is a fascination with government, which makes him interesting. And I think if I were advising him, he should not only be kind of briefing papers about what Hancock did and what Johnson did, but now give a running commentary on what Johnson does in the coming weeks and months. Because clearly, Cummings regards Johnson not only as incompetent, but dangerous as a leader and in the decisions he takes. And so he will be a very useful guide if he detects continued recklessness as Johnson pursues his libertarian instincts rather than um, 
following the scientific data. Uh, so anyway, there's a kind of few thoughts. Now you've uh, got all kinds of uh, interesting points. Uh, there's one here. Uh, sorry, I'm coming to your questions now. I just have to find them. Here we are. Yeah, Louise uh, Louise Davis Jones uh, makes an interesting. Again, there are many broader points to learn from the Cummings testimony, um, as well as his reflections on Johnson and Hancock and so on. And she writes uh, in an email, we knew that patients were coming out of hospital untested at the time. So I don't understand why Hancock is getting a kicking now, other than to deflect from some more damaging uh, revelations. She's right, we did know. It was a huge story uh, last spring and summer. But she makes this point. This is, again, a structural point, which uh, you know is part of the chaos of the way... I was going to say Britain, but in this case, it's the way England is run. Uh, most care homes are privately run businesses or third sector enterprises. They're nothing to do with the NHS. So Sir Simon Stevens, head of NHS in England, would not have been directly responsible for their PPE, nor would Sunak in giving the finances for it, or indeed Hancock. But so, yeah, the, the separation of... Uh, social care from the NHS is a deep problem, has been for years and exposed by the pandemic. Um, and she goes on to say, uh, but there, there was, as I thought early in COVID, a massive lack of understanding of how the care sector works in the heart of government. Can that really be the case? Yeah, I think it can. I think they tried to pull levers and found there were no levers to pull. So Matt Hancock would make pledges about the care sector, but as he, in fairness, occasionally pointed out, he isn't in charge of the care sector. As, as Louise writes, it's uh, largely privately run. Uh, and that is one of the big fault lines this pandemic has not exposed because we knew about it, but highlighted so vividly. Louise adds, uh, P.S. Summer is trying to burst out. It's just about bursting now, isn't it? So my pod listening activity takes place outside with earbuds while I prod my vio violas, violas and paint walls. Um, yeah, I think you mean uh, flowers, don't you? Not the instrument. Um, and paint walls. Well, how? What a constructive thing to be doing whilst listening and reflecting on these epic, epic issues. Um, a question from Chris Park on Cummings. I'm sure you'll have hundreds of questions on Dom's testimony. Yeah, they 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 flew in. Do emails fly in? But anyway, they did uh, within minutes, actually, of the ending of the seven-hour marathon. Uh, Jeremy Hunt challenged Cummings on whether he was responsible for the failures and whether he didn't carry out his role effectively. I was gobsmacked by this line of questioning. Cummings was a political appointee. He was an advisor, not a civil servant, and had no designated authority or decision-making powers. His job was to advise the prime minister. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a good point in the end that they were often challenging Cummings based on the fact that he did wield considerable influence within government, because we know that Johnson gave him unprecedented powers over special advisors and over the entire system. But you're right, Chris, he was 
a special advisor. Um, the issue must always return to the Prime Minister. I used to argue that about, you know, do you remember there was used to be huge furore about Alistair Campbell? The BBC was obsessed with Alistair Campbell. Um, but in the end, the authority of special advisers is derived from uh, Boris Johnson. And what was so revealing about Cummings' testimony is that at times they regarded Johnson as so reckless. Like, for example, Cummings mentions Johnson's, he called it his two-week holiday in February 2020 as the virus was heading fast towards the UK. But he gave the impression that the whole system was almost relieved Johnson was out of the way because if he had attended the COBRA meetings, uh, he would have been so lax and relaxed and told them all there was nothing to worry about. So the absence of Johnson and then the decision-making of Johnson is far more pivotal, as you suggest, Chris, than uh, anything Cummings did or failed to do. Uh, another question from Peter Wilkening. Following uh, e evidence produced by Cummings, Keir Starmer attempted to question uh, PMQs today, Boris Johnson, but was brushed aside. Um, and all Johnson did was re refer to the review that's going to take place in 2022 and then emphasise the success of the vaccination programme, which, of course, has nothing to do with what uh, the points Cummings was making. So, he says, uh, PMQs is the one opportunity that the leader of the opposition has to challenge the um, Prime Minister on national television. Is there any suggestion you could make which would enable Keir to have some impact? One suggestion, could humour be a weapon that he could use to much greater effect? Um, yeah, humour is absolutely one of the weapons he should use uh, if he can do and it involves partly being quick-witted responding with humor to johnson's bluster um, but also sometimes preparing witty uh, responses or lines um, and yeah it, it was interesting on the day of the testimony they broke off for pnqs and it just appeared like a kind of fairly meaningless sideshow but as I've just explained it's Johnson who actually should be the one at the heart of all of this but uh, Matthew Dancona the columnist uh, tweeted it was a bit like a sort of the chalk ice have a chalk ice during the interval and then get back to the main program which was uh, Cummings um, you know there was a line about Keir Starmer which was fair that at first he was really good at PMQs because he challenged Johnson with his command of detail, which Johnson doesn't have. But Johnson has learned to bluster his way through and Keir Starmer needs to adapt. Uh, it's one of his many, many challenges. We're coming on to Labour in a minute. Um, a, a quick uh, question from S Scott Crosswell. Uh, despite Dominic Cummings seriously uh, damning comments about Johnson being unfit to be PM, will this have any effect on the public's perception of him? Yeah, it's uh, the polls immediately afterwards, <laughs> as ever, showed um, a rise in the Tory lead. Um, now Johnson's had a, a wedding, no doubt the grateful voters will give him a 50% poll lead uh, for getting married for, is it the th yeah, third time? This one, a Catholic wedding. Uh, he's agile, isn't he, on many fronts. Um, but I think there isn't, 
it felt hugely significant to me the testimony on of Cummings the, the length of it the detail the light shone on the chaos behind the government now if most voters aren't paying attention to be honest they should I mean this is about the way they are being governed and at some point I suspect they will um, but in the short term it suggests not much although polls showed some narrowing of the lead uh, at the weekend Scott um, but you know it, it I, I think we should forget about this thing cut through will it cut through oh you know people loftily tweet uh, voters aren't interested in any of this as if the tweeter has some special insight the point is you just have to say is it significant and clearly clearly it is on on many levels okay so other non-cummings uh questions uh andy Rowe. uh hi steve uh thanks very much for your podcast i listen to them as i'm doing the ironing here in sunny huddersfield there are more glamorous pursuits andy but ironing yeah is one of the more common ones actually um anyway oh my wife recently said to me you really like him don't you um oh well well i'm thrilled thank you and for your wife's observation your wife needs to listen when she's doing something else you obviously do the ironing anyway uh andy asks a question which came to me recently perhaps when thinking about labor's problems is that one of the problems of the center left is that they feel that they can't be candid about their strongly held view that society would be better with better public services and this requires higher taxes in not being able to be candid it leads to a kind of strangulated passionless and inauthentic tone and message i agree with you 100 percent they and i won't add much more to it uh new labor got round this by basically saying they would stick to the tax and spend limits of the conservative government uh at least in uh the first few years and then Gordon Brown found ways very cleverly of stealthily putting up taxes. But then he became famous for being a stealth chancellor, which is a contradiction in terms. A bit like Harold Wilson being famous for being devious. If you're devious, people don't know you're devious. Um, and it remains a huge problem. And if you notice, even with the conversation with Ed Miliband, who's now in the shadow cabinet, uh, we didn't discuss how much his ideas would cost. And where the money would come from uh, it remains the great conundrum uh, although it has to be said although they were safely in government when this happened when Gordon Brown overtly put up taxes to pay for increases in the NHS and his budget I think it was 2002 the poll suggested it was one of the most popular budgets in the post-war period so maybe there are ways of doing it but it's very hard from opposition. And you're right, the consequences are kind of awkward, strangulated tone. Um, and on the same, well, not it's a different theme, but Labour-related from Jonathan Burroughs, uh, Jonathan wonders whether there is a way of uh, progressive politics uh, claiming the flag, a kind of progressive nationalism. And he cites the fact, for example, that so many 
of the companies in Britain are foreign-owned, and maybe there is a way of sort of exposing the limits of that and getting kind of more British firms to own things. Where are the British train manufacturers, the British plane manufacturers? Why are our nuclear power stations built by foreign companies? A kind of progressive nationalism, a flag-waving which kind of makes uh, more sense than just appearing in front of a flag as Keir Starmer did suddenly without clearing the ground first. I think I've said in, uh, on here before, Jonathan, there is definitely a way of claiming the patriotic case. And indeed, one of them might well be to um, highlight the fact that so much is foreign-owned, although you have to be careful with this because you don't want to say you're going to sort of make it difficult for foreign companies to come here because that will cost jobs, etc. But I agree with you that... Um, progressive nationalism is a perfectly legitimate combination, um, but it's got to be done cleverly and carefully and thought through. And I think if Keir Starmer had begun by saying, look, you know, patriotism is a big theme at the moment, I am a patriot, here's why, then appeared with Union Jacks all over the place, uh, it would have been more convincing. Uh, Margaret Kultrop writes to say, oh, she listens to the podcast in bed. Yeah, that's great. Um, there are more active pursuits going on, Margaret, uh, while people are listening to the podcast, but that is, that's great. Um, and she says, last week you talked about the Labour candidate in Hartlepool and we're just about to talk about the winning Tory when you were sidetracked. I can't remember that, uh, Margaret, um, about the Tory candidate. Uh, I think she was about to expect from me a ons an onslaught, but I don't, know, I don't know anything about the Tory candidate. She won. And so it's quite brave of people frankly to stand in these by-elections you're very exposed um and but i don't know much about her I'll, I'll look into it she's now of course an mp the tory mp from hartlepool isn't it sort of weird um so there we are that's um a few labor questions now some so we've done cummings we've done labor a couple of general questions i told you you could run half a marathon uh, during this. Um, oh, actually, yeah, there's another one uh, on uh, Cummings from Stuart Wolvin. I'd, I'd missed out. Steve, I know you've analysed the role of the PM's former chief advisor. I find the testimony hard to follow. The previous assumption had been that after the Barnard Castle affair, Cummings wanted to stay to the extent of making ludicrous statements on live TV. He admitted last week, uh, Stuart, that it was a disaster. His rose garden appearance and that johnson tried to hold on to him if cummings thought johnson so useless why did he ask him to help in that way and stay why didn't he go well he addressed that during the seven hours Stuart, and he just said he, he now wonders whether he should have left earlier which might be disingenuous people often do look back and claim oh if only i'd left earlier um and he said he decided to stay on because he wanted to influence johnson over key decisions coming up in the early autumn and he said he failed to do so because he was arguing for an earlier lockdown and this was when he claimed johnson was saying let the bodies pile high i'm not going to lock down again so that was the reason he claims he stayed on it's very hard to let go of power uh, that might be another factor
Uh, Geraldine Henley on another question said, uh, what is, why is the G7 coming to Cornwall? What type of example is that? Why don't they meet virtually? How will it square with the likely toning down of the lockdown on the 21st of June? Uh, she says more and more people are asking this. Yeah, I was in Cornwall, and their dream scenario, that some of the locals I spoke to, was that they get all the infrastructure improvements, but then it doesn't happen. Um, and it still might not. I mean, there are huge advantages in meeting uh, together uh, physically. Um, but let's see. I mean, let's see what the state of the variant is. I mean, I know the whole expectation and intention is that it will happen down there. When I was down last week, the weather was so bad. It would uh, let's hope it, the sun is shining. If they do manage to go, um, you know, I don't want to see Biden in the kind of storms I was walking through last week. Um, but um, yeah, uh, we don't know for sure. But I know the intention is that it is going ahead, and you should see the work going on down there. To the, on the whole, uh, fury of locals, some locals anyway. Now, as I said earlier, Tom Richardson is doing A-levels and wants our advice. Going to start with me. I don't know what all of you think. Uh, hi, Steve. Uh, my name is Tom Richardson. I've re Richardson. I've recently finished my A-levels, one of them being history. One of the core subjects we do is the making of modern Britain, 1951 to 2007. My final... Uh, oh, he doesn't want our advice. Well, retrospectively, I think he's written it. My final essay question in the exam was as follows. Tony Blair's foreign policy in the years 2001, 2007 failed on all counts. Assess the validity of this view. That's the question. Tom says, I found this a challenging question as due to the time frame, you can't mention Kosovo or the relationship with Clinton which would have come under successes. Instead, I said Blair failed in terms of the war on terror with Iraq, of course, as well as his relations with Europe failing. But as a Blairite, I defended Blair by arguing the war of terror did have tangible achievements such as the removal of Saddam and that Blair's role as a statesman with the US and Europe did help Britain's standing in the world. What's your view? Well, it sounds like a good answer, Tom because it's subtle it's not just an all-out attack they might the examiners will i don't want to sound premature and you know i didn't mark the essay remember but it sounds as if you're going to get a good mark for it i don't know whether i agree with you um i think this was a period uh in which uh the, uh, the, the it's very hard you can't kind of extract the removal of saddam really yes that did happen but the consequences uh, were dire uh, of that invasion on so many different fronts. Now, I don't think uh, Blair would have done it if Bush hadn't wanted to do it. My view is that it was all about keeping in with the United States and showing that a Labour Prime Minister can work closely with a Republican president and that a Labour Prime Minister is strong on defence because in the 80s, Labour lost elections and so on. Of course, he thought it was justified because of the removal of Saddam as well. Um, but I don't think it was. So I don't think I'd have been quite as generous in your assessment of foreign policy. I think in terms of Europe, there, I mean, when you compare it with what followed, um, he, he, he was constructive and engaged 
and of course never thought that a nanosecond of contemplating leaving or a referendum on leaving, although he did contemplate a referendum when there was going to be a constitution, and I think he would probably have lost it, I'm afraid. Um, so, and he never really put the case with passion because of the Eurosceptic press. But uh, uh, it, certainly on Europe, there is a nuanced tale to tell. I don't think there is with Iraq, but I do understand the reasons why he became trapped. That's kind of my take on it. Uh, I don't know whether in an A-level question you'd have had time to get all that in. But I reckon you're heading for an A, Tom. I hope I'm right. Anyway, there's some questions. Thank you all for sending them in. There were loads and loads, especially about Cummings. Um, but, God, we well, say some of you will have run half a marathon listening to this. Others would have cooked the most beautiful dishes, and some of you will be in bed and others doing your ironing. But I think we've got through a hell of a lot today. Thank you so much for listening. As I say, do book your tickets for the live show. You know, real life, remember that? The, the old-fashioned days. Um, and the shows in Greenwich and the Rope Tackle in Shoreham. And we'll all get together again next week. Oh, yeah, if you could um, uh, rate and review or whatever it is, the podcast, you know, on the iTunes thing. Apparently, it means it becomes much more accessible. And so, as I've said before... Our community can grow and grow. Anyway, thank you very much. All kinds of things will happen as we get together next week. But you know that together we'll make sense of it all. Thank you very much. Have a good week. Bye.